Welcome to the Five Phenomenon Podcast. I am your host, Shane Hazen. Coming up on today's episode, Jess Husele from the Sundance Institute's uh, Creative Distribution Initiative. She's Manager of Research and Education, and with the Sundance Film Festival starting up this week, uh, I wanted to have her on because she's got a very unique perspective and um, outlook on the uh, future of indie distribution, and it's very vital to where independent filmmaking is going in general, but... First up, what I watched this week, um, the just recently I just saw Parasite for a third time, which that's fun. Um, it just finally came to Evansville, and um, it was a good crowd, which we don't always get in Evansville. And uh, it's that that movie always works really well with the crowd um, every time I've seen it. And um, for the first time, I finally got what the last shot meant. Um, first two viewings, I didn't get that. Um, not so much theatrically, uh, one of the most interesting things I saw this week was those first two episodes of The Outsider, which, um, you know, I've had, I feel like I've had a few auteurist debates lately since the Scorsese brouhaha about Marvel, and this is one of those great examples of, um, Jason Bateman directed both episodes, I think he's probably directing all of them, and he's a pretty solid director, um, but this is a great example. The auteur theory doesn't always need to be 100% the way it's done because when you have a writer-producer like Richard Price, man, it's just going to be a pure uh, sign of quality and, and cinematic quality. And just it's he's just such a great writer. He's such a great writer, both as a novelist and a screenwriter. And his TV output has, uh, the last few years, since The Wire in particular, has been phenomenal. Um, the uh, other thing uh, I deep-dived into, I've been meaning to get around to this for a while, is uh, Lords of Flatbush. It was from, I want to say, 73 or 74. It's a, um, It was kind of coming around around the time Happy Days was first coming out, and it's uh, notable for having one of uh, Stallone's, Sylvester Stallone's first big uh, entrances to the American public. Um, uh, he... I, I became into, interested in, after reading um, Quentin Tarantino on the New Beverly blog, wrote uh, a great essay about it. And if you haven't been checking out his essays on the New Beverly blog, for someone like me that's, um, you know, sad that he's going to retire, I'm also not as sad just because uh, uh, I used to, I, I, I went to a few QT fests back in the day in Austin, and to hear him talk about any movie makes you instantly want to watch it. So knowing that he's going to start doing film criticism i i mean i'm going to miss his movies but it's clear he's going to be working in different mediums but i'm really looking forward to his film criticism and the early stuff he's written reviews for um or essays about the shootist big wednesday the yakuza escape from alcatraz which if i remember correctly uh past guest ted haycraft thinks it's one of the best things written about 70 action 70s action movies and um uh, He's not disappointing on that. If you can, I highly remit, uh, recommend checking out Tarantino's uh, writing on the New Beverly blog. But I should also mention that the Oscar nominations came out uh, last week, and I'm not, I don't care about going into the deep dive of who got what. I really, it, it is sad and annoying to me how every year increasingly I just don't care about the Oscars. And maybe that's harsh because... What I'm looking for is actual, you know, subjectivity. We all, and it's, it's a consensus, and it's, you know, very short-sighted consensus. But I get frustrated by how, as a, like, film fans, we never rely on the Oscars for uh, movies we're going to be interested in 10 years. And increasingly, I just don't remember who won the Oscar 
five years ago, and now it's getting to the point. I don't remember who won the last two or three years, who the nominees were. You look at the lists, and you're just like, oh, that's not a good movie, and it's on there. And, I mean, to a certain extent, the movies we are going to be interested in 10 years are the ones that right now are very divisive um, and people feel strongly about. And what happens is the people who don't, who strongly dislike them, that's going to go to the wayside, and the people that feel strongly for them are going to continue that passion. And so, yeah, inherently... A lot of these top ten lists, they serve a function, and it's fine, but the Oscars in particular, I find very annoying just because um, um, if you're familiar with the Oscars' origins, what it uh, came down to was Louis Mayer was, um, he, he was having a fight with what at the time was the motion picture producers and distributors of America, which later became the MPAA, and it was this combination of him trying to find an alternate way of getting more sway over that with uh, what they were doing with uh, self-censorship and um it was a weird way of of heading off organized labor so it almost became like a um uh, a uh, carrot to get below the line and above the line people to have a false sense of uh of quality and it's particularly at mgm he wanted everyone he wanted all the best stars there and so he started this in 26 1926 i believe and uh, it was a me- dinner meeting that expanded out and i think the first ceremony was 28 and which yes there's a very cynical reason why the academy awards were made shock of shockers um but today it just feels like um it's the only reason studios are making mid-budget stuff uh and then you have these really middle brow um uh, important ideas of what a movie should be, which you end up with biopics that have as much research as a Wikipedia article, and then you have um, actors doing a decent SNL performance uh, impression that hopefully is a decent acting performance, and then they get nominated, and it almost, it's almost like it's the uh, the award is their justification for being in these like four quadrant uh soulless uh corporate stuff that they're trying to sell to china and i just miss watching as a teenager and really actually thinking the oscars meant something and i don't i mean i don't know what replaces that anymore but i don't know anyway Jess UCLA is on the show today. She works for Sundance. Um, and uh, not to double up on information that I'm going to talk about, or we're going to talk about in the interview, um, I knew Jess through her husband, Nicholas Gonda, who um, um, I had worked for previously. And uh, Nick has always been, um, he, he's a pretty, or, He's always been very um, encouraging to, I know to me and to other of my friends about um, our desires to make our own films, uh, writer, director, what, however. And he's not only been encouraging, but what's great is he's also been pragmatic and honest about it too, about what, what you need to set yourself out in the marketplace and uh, what realistically people are, or um, financiers uh, and investors are really looking for. And so, um, I always reach out to him with random ideas or random thoughts about trying to think out of the box. And um, with my move to um, the Midwest, which, you know, mainly is for uh, cost of living, there's been a fear in the back of my head 
um, that I projected onto friends that um, I feel like I'm making a retreat from this goal of um, writing, directing movies. Um, and it's weird just because I'm also having to rethink all that in general just because, you know, when I was a teenager, I convinced myself that movies were the best art form. They were the most empathetic art form. And um, I convinced myself that um, the best thing you could do is show another person your inner life and, um, and make them empathize with that. And hopefully they can do the same and we can all get along so and figure each other out. And that was the reason I wanted to make movies. That's how I, that was my logic that I stuck to for years. And, uh, midlife cut to 20 years later, midlife crisis. Um, there's just been a lot of rethinking that. And so trying to think out of the box, moving back, uh, to my hometown, um, but also trying to think of the positives. Regional filmmaking's made a giant rise. Um, I wanted to use all the uh, technical knowledge that I've gained working on these other movies in the last few years. And um, also just technology and distribution venues are getting better and better. You know, um, every phone shoots 4K, which five years ago, that was gold to indie filmmakers. And, um, you know, sound is getting better. Um, listeners to this podcast may not agree with uh, the sound, my sound uh, recording chops, but um, but the other thing was just that the pathway, which I thought was to get to write and direct your movies and have someone pay for them and make a career out of it, increasingly just does not. It's a it's a big or it's a very tiny bullseye to hit anymore, and. Trying to rethink that, rethink what I want to do, what I, like like Paul Schrader said uh, last year or two years ago when First Reform was doing well that being on the other side of a win that feels like uh, four or five films in the indie film market are picked to actually be successful at the end of the year and there's the tastemakers and the gatekeepers can pick that and then but there's more movies being made than ever and in theory yes they're getting shown but. Um, the trick also then like you have to separate am i making movies to make movies to express and make art and uh engage with other people or am i trying to make something that's good enough that people will keep paying me and i can keep food on the table and or even not even just food on the table like also like my increasingly as you get older your lifestyle increases more i, I buy a house you know or i have kids like you're just paying for that it's why so many uh, tech people go out to LA to be uh, uh, filmmakers and they settle into craftsman roles because they get a mortgage and so I've just been trying to think out of the box and um, what it would mean to like uh, start making movies like I made when I was in college and uh, with that aforementioned uh, newer technical knowledge and and just try to get back to the intrinsic fun and creativity of making movies to make movies and put them out there um just because i i've lost all trust in the um or i have very little trust in um movies certain movies getting out to um the tastemakers and i've always raved for years although i haven't practiced what i preached about the democratic greatness of the internet to at least put stuff out there whether or not it's successful and again whether or not you can make a sustainable living off this you can still put that out there. And um, that's kind of what this podcast is about. And 
um, just putting your own voice out or putting my voice out there and uh, the considering that it's worthwhile um, anyway <laughs> long preamble uh, Nick finally said uh, if you're talking about self-distribution you should talk to my wife Jess and I, I've known Jess for years and um, got her on the phone and um, for like 45 minutes and she answered so many of my questions just because in particular it feels like uh, the model is shrinking and uh, it would do us good to uh, start looking at other venues if we're going to start putting our own film or keeping our films out there because the thing about shrinking windows means that um, we're going to be shrinking ideas of whose stories can be told and whose stories are getting out there and there is a certain amount of democratization with um, more women and people of color hopefully their voices getting out there but um, there also is this feeling that the people paying for them are the ones that decide what type of stories get made. And that is just a recipe for um, very stale stories and or to expand the sophistication of the art form. Like it's just not going to go anywhere with that. So uh, <laughs> oh, that was so freaking pretentious. Uh, so Jess was kind enough to tell me about how to make horror movies on an iPhone uh, and or in general just what the future of uh, if for someone like me when to put out my own stuff and not have to go the route of a festival um, what our possibilities lie even if you're just willing to just make um, movies in an anonymity th this is the future so without further ado Jess Fuselage <laughs> I don't, I'm trying to remember when was the last time we saw each other. Was oh it? Oh my the, god! Was it at um, one of the inheritance screenings? Probably. Um, it's been it's been a minute. I was at the was I there? I was at the dances with films screening. Was I was I was not there. I was not there. I'm not sure if I've actually ever asked you this. Uh, where are you from? Austin. Yo, you are yeah. from Austin. Okay. Yep. I'm from Austin, born there, raised in the suburbs of Dallas, and then I got back to Austin as, as quick as I could following oh. that. So, Okay. Where, um, where'd you go to college? I, uh, I went to, I started out at Sarah Lawrence. Okay. Nice. Um, which I loved. And then I transferred because of, you know, how expensive New York is and how expensive uh, colleges like sure. Sarah Lawrence are. Um, I transferred back uh, to, or I transferred to University of Texas, um, just because I could get the in-state tuition and it was a little bit easier on the, the pocket. Okay. Um, and so, so yeah, I finished out there. So technically my degree is from UT. Okay. Um, well as a kid, were you a movie person? You know, it's funny as a kid, I would say I was like, I was a movie person in the sense that it was something my, my family loved to do. Um, we loved to go to the movies and, um, you know, my, <laughs> my family was a little bit more of kind of like the blockbuster, big, big hit movie family. So, um, you know, we were around a lot of megaplexes. So those were the types of films that, um, that I saw as a, as a kid. But, um, as I got older, um, and obviously, you know, being uh, in a relationship with the with the guy I ultimately married, 
um, I became, uh, you know, much more into the independent, um, art house scene and, uh, and yeah, I just kind of opened my eyes. So I was, it was a little bit later in life that I got turned on to, um, the beauty of independent cinema. But, um, but when I did, I was hooked. Okay. So we should definitely, uh, illuminate exactly how we know each other. I, uh, <laughs> so I, um, um, I worked for your husband, Nick, Nicholas Gonda and, um, you, uh, I first in- encountered you when uh, you were an actress in a movie I was editing. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, you were, so... although we had to cut around <laughs> your face so much significantly because of uh, the character you played. Yes. Uh, or the spirit there's... of it. I guess. Exactly. There's some some interesting things about that character. No. Um. And to add a little more background to that, um, I am not an actress at all um and that was my one and only time acting um i kind of <laughs> threw in the threw in the towel after that no it was a great experience go out on a high it. yeah exactly I was, I was already on high note so um yeah so no it was a it was a one-time thing that you know uh, ultimately led to so many other amazing um were you hired as a dancer life. I was hired, so they came into the studios. I was dancing with Ballet Austin at the time, and they came into the studios looking for ballet dancers to audition for a certain part, and they asked a handful of us uh, to audition, and I was like, yeah, why not? New experience. Um, I'll just audition, and ended up getting the part and meeting the love of my life, and that was that was it. That when, was history. When so. did you meet Nick? Um, <laughs> I met Nick... Pretty quickly. Um, so I met him. He, you know, uh, he was the one who uh, ran the auditions. And so I met him during the auditions. Um, and he was always so incredibly professional. Um, and uh, <laughs> he would be embarrassed if I said this, but um, I truly fell in love with him the minute I saw him. Um, and so, so yeah, I always thought he was just a very handsome, um, very respectful guy, uh, which he is. Which Um, I I second that too. (laughs) And, uh, and yeah, so the, the love kind of blossomed over quite a few months of test shoots and, you know, early mornings and, and, and Austin and, uh, and yeah. It's funny because it um, AJ Edwards was uh, on an earlier episode and we talked about on there about uh, him and Nick's uh, casting search and audition, audition process too on there. Yeah, that was pretty nuts. Them waking up at like three in the morning to drive to these really small towns in Texas. Um, it's pretty bananas. <laughs> I remember those days. Were there any like um, when you're little, like I, I remember my nieces, um, she had a period where she started getting into dancing and I made sure to show her like uh, um, Red Shoes or something like that. Were there any dancing movies sure. that you were or anything like that they complemented each other overlapped? Yeah. I mean, um, one that was a little more risque, um, but I really loved it um, growing up. Uh, was all that jazz? Okay. That was a very that was a very popular one um, for me. Uh, White Nights was also uh, an amazing one. I don't with, know. I don't uh, know White Nights. Uh, it's with Baryshnikov and Gregory oh. Hines. Um, so Gregory Hines is like a legendary. Um, he was a legendary tap dancer, um, and you know, obviously Baryshnikov is the the famous Russian uh, uh, ballerino. And it was, oh gosh, I think it was done in like. I want to say it was done in like the 70s or 80s. Okay. Um, but really great film. 
Those were two of my favorites. I just finally got around last week to seeing um, Coppola just released the Cotton Club encore where he they put in a bunch more stuff and it was mostly Gregory Hines they put back in. It's a lot of dance sequences that. Oh, that's amazing. They cut them out because they were like, don't you know, don't for the plot, but they put them back in. You should check it out. You should. Oh, I definitely will. That's that's a gem right there. Another one was a turning point. and I'm blanking out on who was in it, but um, but that was a ballet film that I, I mean, I watched that film over and over and over again when I was a kid. So I would say those were my top three. Okay. Uh, and then of course, as you know, when Center Stage came out, every, <laughs> every single dancer saw that movie and we made fun of it, but also loved it at the same time. Did you so. see the uh, Altman <laughs> movie, The Company? No, I didn't see it. Uh-uh. It's 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 a good dancers movie. It's what's cool yeah. is it's a it's Altman, so it's relatively plotless. But like it's totally. it's it's definitely a showcase of dancers. But um, oh, I, it. I should go ahead and ask you to clarify what exactly is your job title, your full title currently? Yes, currently. <laughs> um, or your I, best one. <laughs> um, I am the senior manager of research and education for Sundance Institute. Um, and I primarily work with the creative producing program within the Institute. Okay. So what does that entail? You know, uh, when I find out, I'll let you know, no, it's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's a really cool title because, um, I get, I get to work on a lot of different initiatives, um, within the Institute. Um, and I'm also, uh, very fortunate that I can kind of work across the different programs that the Institute has, you know, the Institute has so many different departments, um, not only their, um, you know, documentary, uh, program and their, you know, feature program, um, but they have episodic and new frontier, which is their emerging media program, their indigenous program. There's a, a ton of different programs that I'm kind of able to, um, work alongside and work with, uh, throughout the year. So, um, Basically, what I do is is I oversee, um, you know, a lot of the the research that's going on within the institute, and we're, you know, right now we're really focused on um, researching kind of the 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 marketplace and what's going on, um, and finding sustainable pathways for for our creators. Um, so that's what most of the research that I'm involved in um, kind of centers around. Okay. Um, and then in terms of education, um, I also, uh, you know help a lot with um educational materials that we're creating for our uh for our content creators um as well as i sit on the digital team and we just created you know there's a digital platform that was launched not too long ago called collab um where we do a a ton of um educational content uh for for creators and there's um a free portion of that and then there's also kind of like paid courses that we run on the platform as well where's that at collab um, so it's just uh, collab, collab, so sundance.org. Okay. Um, and then, anybody can check it out. What so. kind of free content's on there? Um, we have a ton of videos. So we have um, a lot of videos from our archives, but we also um, we also do uh, custom content for the site as well. Um, so we've interviewed directors, producers, editors, cinematographers. 
um, talking about, you know, their process, um, you know, how they got into the business, their inspiration behind their work. Um, it really kind of runs the gamut. Okay. Um, and, uh, and yeah, we, we also do some, um, some partner content. Like we just did a couple of videos with studio binder that are, that are up on there too. Um, we have resources, uh, an entire resources page. Um, so that's kind of curated from sites that we love in addition to resources that we've written, you know, like how to apply for grants, how to apply for the festival, um, things of that nature. Um, and then we also list a ton of events from, uh, from our partners and then just other events in the field that we think are important for people to know about as well as opportunities. So you'll find a list of all of our opportunities that you can apply for through the Institute in addition to, you know, partner opportunities like looking at Austin Film Society, for instance, and okay. what they have on. So. So how long have you been at Sundance? Um, I have been at Sundance a little over two years. It will be three years in April. Okay. Um, so backtracking slightly, the reason I wanted you on here was um, uh, when I made this move to uh, the Midwest, um, whether or not it was conscious of people giving me this feeling or I was worrying about this, but I felt like there's a part of me that worried that I was making a retreat and, um, you know, I, I still want to eventually write and direct films, but I was... We started talking because I hit up your husband because I was like wanting to know what he thought about self-distribution or just putting stuff on the internet for yourself or because I'm wanting to get back to a place where I'm making stuff like I made in college and you know um, especially now that I feel like I have a better technical threshold for this stuff and put out myself and actually and you keep seeing YouTube people that um, seem like they're making money off their videos and short form content and um, and so I started asking Nick about what the future of this was, and uh, it only exchanged a few uh, questions where he's like, you need, you need to talk to Jess about this. And <laughs> you got on the phone with me for about a half hour, and it was one of the most illuminating, mind-blowing, inspiring <laughs> like, like conversations. Because... Thank you. <laughs> well, th what's happened lately uh, in the indies I've been working in is that you really get a sense that the, formu the formula that we used to go through, um, especially going through um, at least, you know, make a good movie, it goes to festivals, it's a meritocracy, and then it goes, it gets bought by somebody else, and then you make money for that. Because of streaming and the, you know, overwhelming amount of material, uh, content out there that that model is working for less people or like yeah. yeah so I guess uh I don't know what my question is there I <laughs> well first off did you work on first girl I loved you know I didn't work on first girl I loved that was right before I started with Sundance so um I can kind of you know I can kind of jump into you know where I started at Sundance and, and okay. kind of like the evolution of that because I think that would be helpful. Um, so when I started out, I started working with a department called the Creative Distribution Initiative. Um, you know that department has since um, kind of uh, it's it's being reborn into um, like other aspects of of the institute. So a lot of that distribution work is now. Um, is now working under our impact engagement and advocacy program, which is, um, you know, now where I do a lot of my work and I work with the amazing Brenda Coughlin. Um, she's our director of impact strategy and it's just, uh, incredible. Um, so that's kind of where the distribution work lies. But when I started, we had a very specific department focused on distribution. Um, and what, what you're referencing for a girl I love was kind of the, the first kind of pilot film, um, 
under our, our fellowship. So it wasn't technically called a fellowship at the time, um, but they helped that film do, um, you know, our department kind of provided resources and access to consultants and helped them self-release that film. Um, and then following that, um, it, you know, it was, it was a successful release. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and so they decided to make like a, you know, a full fellowship out what, of the program. What were the um, numbers for first girl? Oh gosh. First girl, I would need to go back. It's been so long, but I, what I can do is I can send you, um, to put in the, the show notes. We actually have, um, two pieces that the producer, wrote um and it's very transparent they break down all the numbers um i I think i might i might have read that at some point i guess yeah i i I just i remember it was it definitely had us like at the time when uh they were going to self um uh distribution i remember they i don't think they i think they were over the stigma but they seemed like they were um okay with it but it's it's um i what were the other successes that, or you guys did uh, uh, Columbus too, or Columbus was definitely a success. Um, the interesting thing about um, about that film is, um, you know, we we kind of joke and say like we shot ourselves in the foot at, out of the gate because that film did so well theatrically, and that's not like that's typically not what happens okay. um, in the course of the landscape right now. However, um, the interesting thing about that film was. That was the, the that was the epitome of an art house, you know, audience film. Like they just ate that film up. There was something about it. It was, you know, Koganada is just like such an art house name. Even though that was his first feature, he's known for doing these visual essays of like breaking down other directors' work. And so, um, you know, he kind of already had a cult following, um, and they were able to really tap into that. And they made over a million dollars in the box office. Um, which was like unheard of for a film that size. Um, so they had a, a really successful release. And then we also did Unrest, which was our documentary film for the first year. Okay. Um, and then the three films that, um, you know, the case studies will actually be releasing in either February or March um, of this year. We did Thunder Road, which oh, is... That's an Austin-based movie, yeah. That is an Austin-based movie. And that case study is wild. Um talk about successful and they they are so they're just like go-getters and completely like the epitome of diy um and then we had 306 hollywood um and the double we know which are two nonfiction titles um that both had very different different styles of releasing um based on what the goals the filmmakers goals were so um what is the uh, metric usually goes into with the uh, the data or the numbers when people have to decide whether or not is if because um, you mentioned box office numbers like mm-hmm. uh, but self distribution what kind of numbers would people look at when they're trying to decide if they're going to self distribute or not? Um, was was, Col- so was Columbus? Uh, did yeah. they ever think about just going straight to uh, um, the platforms, the digital platforms? Sure. Or? Yeah, I think that's always a conversation starting out with every film. Right. Um, and I think I, I think it's it's always do we go theatrical or, or do we not? Um, and it's it's a lot of it's a lot of money and uh, people power um, in order to get a film off the ground theatrically. So it's you know, it's a, it's a heavy cost benefit analysis. Now, I wouldn't say um, there's like a specific number that people say, you know, we need to 
Um, or what you know, metrics would they use too? Just especially if they're sure. showing at a festival. Sure. So, you know, I think it re- what it really boils down to is if they feel they have traction with art house audiences. Okay. From Koganadas, like from Columbus's festival release, they just knew from the the turnout that they were getting um, on their on their festival run, they knew that they could have you know traction with with art house audiences, and also just the type of film it was. It was like this very melodic, kind of slow moving, very visual. Um, film that typically does well with with art house audiences. So they started reaching out to exhibitors. Um, they worked with Michael Tuckman, um, who's a really uh, he's a well known kind of independent um, booker, uh, theatrical booker in the space, um, and he helped them kind of suss out the different markets okay. um, that they could that they could do well in. Um, and so for them, something that they had to that they had to you know, way more in like the middle of their release was they started getting a lot of requests um, in addition to the markets that they identified starting out. Um, they, they started getting a lot of requests from additional art house cinemas across the country um, to screen the film. And so at that point, the cost benefit analysis that they had to do was, okay, if we add on these additional screenings, you know, is it, is it going to help us or hurt us in terms of are we going to be spending more in order to like get this film out, like creating more DCPs, paying more VPFs, um, virtual print fees for for people who are unaware of that? Um, that was my next you know, question. <laughs> yeah, so some some theaters have them, some theaters don't. Um, it's less in the art house space that um, you'll have to pay VPFs, but it's it's still a possibility, um, which is basically it's like a, a one-time fee that you have to pay in order to to screen the film in a certain theater. You'll find that. Then um, this is something that I, I learned from um, somebody who's been in the exhibition space for a while. I learned recently is that you'll find more of those VPF fees and kind of like the bigger megaplexes, like the AMCs and things like that. But essentially you have all of these costs that add up very quickly in order to, you know, put your film out theatrically. So they had to, they, and it's, you know, it was like one of those things that they had to make a very quick decision. Do we expand? Do we have the money to expand? Um, and is there a way that we can expand um, thoughtfully without having to pay too many fees? So what they did is they worked with their theatrical booker to identify all of the theaters that had reached out that could play the film digitally rather than having to create more DCPs to ship out, which is like, you know, it adds up to a really big cost. Um, so it was those those types of metrics that they were kind of basing things off of during their theatrical run. Is it just money or sometimes, I, I mean, I, I guess it depends on what the goal is. If you're trying to get like awards traction or uh, long-term word of mouth, like sometimes you want to take a, would you want to take a hit on something so you get in more markets and get more visibility on it? Hundred percent. So that's a really great point. I think um, it, it, at the very beginning, we always ask filmmakers what their goal is. Is it to pay their investors back? That's going to be a very different release than if you're, like you're saying, if you're trying to gain awareness um, as an artist, or are you just trying to go for eyeballs, as many eyeballs as you possibly can? Those are f- three very different um, goals. Yeah. And so, you know, your 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 strategy and your release plan is going to look very different. So, a specific example of that, um, the 306 Hollywood team. Their goal was, you know, this was this was their first feature. Um, they're a, a brother and sister directing uh, partnership. 
um, and they've they've worked together for years now, and um, you know have an incredible portfolio working for museums um, and different brands. But this was their first feature, and they they really felt like they needed to use the release in order to um, gain artistic recognition. So for them, for their theatrical release, they kind of knew out of the gate that they were going to you know not necessarily make money on it and potentially lose money on the theatrical release. But they felt very strongly that in order for them to gain the artistic awareness that they wanted in order to get future work, they felt like they needed their film to be in theaters. I guess um, that was actually going to be one of my next questions was the importance of like um, uh, paying back your investors short term versus uh, building a brand so you can have uh, uh, a personal filmmaker brand, I guess. Um, Yeah. I guess I should uh, ask the obvious question. Um, When you self-distribute, you're paying less people, so you're going to make more of the profit? Depends. Yeah. I mean, I think in, uh, on, you know, looking at it kind of from a a broad lens, yes, you're going to make, you know, you don't have as much money going through a distribution waterfall, right? You're not having to pay a distributor. Um, and so that alone, um, puts more money back in your pocket for sure. But then it's just kind of looking at, you know, how much equity you have in the film, the financing structure of the film, um, to really get a sense of how much money is going back into the filmmaker's pocket. Were you familiar with um, the uh, uh, Soderbergh thing, uh, fingerprints? I forget it was fingerprint pictures or? Um, not. I mean, I I read about it a little bit, but not too familiar. Um, you know, I didn't really do a deep dive okay. on it. Well, because yeah. I because I know he gave it up after two, and I didn't know yeah. if you had any insight as to uh, why that was. Um, I, I know one of the other reasons I, I, I reached out to you was because I had to get over, and especially with a lot of the indies I worked on, everyone fights for theatrical. And I wanted to get a more sense about what kind of living you can make if you weren't, if you gave up on that or if you were putting out your own content online. Um, I guess, um, are you experience a lot of, like, that's the big fight? People, like, everyone just has the dream of showing everything theatrically? Sure. I, I think, you know, and it's, and rightfully so you spend, you, you know, pour your heart and soul and it's such, you know, blood, sweat and tears into making, um, making a film. And, and of course it, it should be, you know, it, it, it should be an aspiration for that to play theatrically. However, I think it's, um, it's really important. And, and, and I think it's important for you to bring people onto your team that can kind of have, um, you know, can take a step back and, and kind of bring it to reality. And it's important to really question whether or not you have a theatrical film. Um, because mm-hmm. if, if you don't, you're going to lose money playing your film theatrically. Like it is very expensive to do a theatrical run um, you know, even if you're not working with a theatrical booker, which sometimes those costs can really add up, um, you know, paying somebody a monthly fee to, to book the film, even if you're doing the bookings yourself, it's still, you know, it's still time that's being taken away from you. Um, in addition to all of the additional costs. So we are always, we, you know, we try to be really, um, you know, kind of, uh, we try to get our, our filmmakers to, to really go through the exercise of thinking whether or not they have a film that lends itself to playing theatrically, um, you know, because there are different spaces that you can exhibit work now and and not have to deal with all of those costs, not sink those costs. And also you, you have to like 
do you have a do you have a theatrical audience? Do you have um, a film that people are actually going to get off their butts in their living room and go see it in a theater, which is becoming every single day, it's becoming harder and harder to get people to leave their places of comfort to go and see a film in yeah. a theater. Um, so it's an important question to ask for sure. <laughs> is there, um, um, I mean, are the, 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 what kind of numbers do people get off the platforms? Like uh, specifically just viewership numbers when they go up on the digital platforms? Sure. So, um, in terms of streamers like Netflix, Hulu, Amazon, like you're you're not going to get any data, really, um, really? From, from those players. I, I yeah. mean, I mean, is an individual filmmaker submitting your or having your movie on there? You're just not going to get access to that. Uh, Netflix and Hulu, no, they're not going to give you any information. If you do Amazon Video Direct, which is basically Amazon's uh, option where you, as a filmmaker, can can put it up on Amazon. Um, and, uh, you know, kind of like set the pricing structure, um, that you'll get some information through, but in terms of like, you know, if you were on Amazon's streaming platform, like if they, if they paid you, you know, if you're on their SVOD platform, if they paid you, a, a um, you know, a licensing fee, you're not going to get, you're really not going to get numbers on that. Um, those giants that all of that information is proprietary and they don't give filmmakers access to that information. Okay. Um, so, which is a bummer. Um, and then with like, you know, the iTunes, the Google plays, um, the transactional video on demand platforms, um, you'll get m kind of monthly estimates from those platforms of, you know, purchases. So you can kind of do the math, right. Of, of how many people have, have purchased or rented the film, but there it really isn't that much access to information. You know, you'll get some information out of Vimeo. Um, Vimeo tries to give you some audience insights. Vimeo is my next question. Yeah. Yeah, so Vimeo, you can, um, and and I I need to I actually need to update myself on on where they're at now. But um, uh, you know, the last I saw of theirs is that they would actually they would actually give you um, they could actually give you like timestamped data where it's like users dropped off at you know a lot of users dropped off at this you know minute minute mark in the film. I you know. I was talking to a friend who's trying to get his uh, movie to distributors and, or um, maybe not distributors or any sales agents. I forget who he was setting it out to, but he was telling mm -hmm. me he would sit at home and uh, he would watch when people stop watching. Like he would, yeah. keep, he would keep tabs on that. Um, yeah. Let's, uh, let's back up a little. So data is a big part of uh, what your job entails. Absolutely. So yeah. you, in between um, when you um, were in Tree of Life and there you were, um, you've been coding? Were, were you? Yeah. Um, so how I got into, you know, kind of looking at data for answers is I, um, so after Tree of Life, I went back to school, got my degree in sociology, um, you know, did some work for uh, nonprofits and did some community organizing work. And all throughout that work, I was kind of, um, you know, really fascinated by the difference between having a well-crafted um, online presence and not. Um, and I could tell that the organizations that I would work with that, that had that, um, you know, really uh, fleshed out, you know, were, were more successful in terms of getting funding and um, getting people behind their mission. And so um, I wanted to be able to help people with that, um, help the organizations that I was working with with that. And so 
I decided like, oh, I want to, I want to learn how to code. I want to learn how to build websites. And so I did a boot camp. It was a 10 week long course where I learned how to code. And at that point I was like, I need to put this to use. I need to like get a job in the space to kind of hone the craft. And so, um, I went and worked at a digital agency and then went to a startup that kind of spun out of that digital agency. I was one of five, you know, kind of like doing the 14 hour grind with my computer every day. And then at a certain point, I was just like, you know what, I need to get back to what I love. I need to get back to the arts. Um, you know, I want to help artists. Uh, it's, you know, it was such a huge passion of mine. I wasn't in a, in a place anymore in my life where I, I wanted to be the artist. You know, I'd spent over 20 years of my life doing that dancing, but I still had such an extreme passion for the arts. And so um, I kind of just like married all of my skills together in terms of knowing how to code and, you know, kind of the community organizing work. And obviously, um, having been an artist myself at one point in time and, you know, found found the job at Sundance. So it was kind of a perfect fit. Well, it's fascinating to me just because I've been doing all these um, uh, deep dives on data lately. Like it's fascinating Like data overtook uh, oil last year's uh, as a moneymaker. And like there's great movies about it. Like recently, The Great Hack on Netflix is really fascinating it's just fascinating that you got in on this wild wild frontier but uh, helpful for indie filmmaking um were you were um were you telling me something you were working with uh or uh, someone that was at ucla you guys were doing uh ai stuff to follow when people watch films and what they were responding to or was it usc maybe um yeah you know we've we've actually um spoken with a with a few different um people in the space. Uh, and, and really what it boils down to is um, I was keenly interested in how AI is going to affect the industry. Um, not so much on the creator side. Um, you know, that's that's not something that I'm, I'm well-versed in. That is something that our New Frontier department is amazing at, um, okay. emerging media and how artists are using AI as an actual art form. Um, but what I was interested in is looking at the business side of things. Um, because obviously, you know, you look at the Netflixes, you look at these streaming giants that have so much power right now, and the reason they have power is because of data and because of because of AI, you know, because they're using AI in order to make predictions as to what's going to be popular on their platform. You know, like their entire business model centers centers around that. So um so I'm really curious about how that was going to affect the space. So I started reaching out to a lot of companies that were using it. Um, you know, Synalytic is one that's really interesting right now. What, um, they're, what's that? they're doing, yeah, so they're doing, um, and there was actually just an announcement that they, they've now struck a deal with Warner Brothers. Um, but basically it's predictive modeling. Um, this is the thing about they're going to green lighting the films. Exactly. So what they do is, um, and they've been around, I've, you know, I've had, I've had quite a few conversations with them. They're a really interesting group. Um, and, you know, what they started with was a platform where you could go in and put a handful of data points, say, you know, this is my budget range, this is the cast that I'm looking to have, um, and, uh, and and basically it would, it would spit out these sample projections. You know, it would talk about, you know, what you could potentially do in the box office, um, and you know how what you could do on on digital platforms, and then also give you kind of like you know, it, it was so crazy. They would also do um, kind of like piracy estimates, which which was also really fascinating too. Um, they know so, how many people are going to pirate the. Yeah, and like different, yeah, and like different regions, like you know, similar content. How has it been pirated in, in different regions? Okay. Um, so, 
really interesting stuff. And I was just, you know, really fascinated that that this technology was out there um, and being created, yet in terms of the voice of the indie creator being present in those conversations, that was lacking significantly. And it still is. Yeah. Um, well, I was you know, going to ask, how does an independent filmmaker, uh, I mean, data, the whole thing is that it's how you, it's how it's read in the masses amount you get into it. So is it, how does an indie filmmaker use that, even something like their own personal website or their um, social network presence? Yeah. So I think, you know, going back to the question of, of these platforms, the, the interesting thing about these platforms is, you know, they're they're as good as the information they're ingesting, right? And so, you know, they're they're getting a lot of information on films that are kind of like I would say like ten million and up. Oh, but yeah. the information of like films that are like below ten million, um, it's really it's really hard because they're they just like don't they don't have access to that information. And so that's kind of the interesting um, space we're in right now is that yes, the technology is there, but in terms of it actually being smart on, on data surrounding tr like really independent films, it's not there yet. And so it's kind of like, where do they find the access to that information? And like, you know, how do, how do we kind of do a better job of, of starting to bring independent creators into, into those conversations and, and, and getting them to say like, if I had a platform like this, this is how I would use it. And, you know, kind of getting them involved in, in the, the use cases and the, in the testing of that technology. So hopefully we'll see more of that. But in terms of, of artists actually using data to their benefit, um, independent artists using data to their benefit, the, the data that they have access to. Sure. I mean, like, I think you, you look at creating a website, right? And there's basic analytics on any any website you create today. So you look at the Squarespaces. Um, this is exactly you know. what I'm using right now. Yeah. Yeah, and you can get basic information of of you know not just who is looking at your website, but also referrals, like where they're coming from, right? Is it a post that you put in Facebook where you're getting a lot of traction? Is it you know an ad that you took out on Instagram? Um, so right. you can, you can get that information. You can get that traffic information. Is it literally a Google search that brought them to your website? So it's important to be mindful of that and, and not ignore that because then you can start to get smart with the type of marketing that you're, that you're putting behind your film. And then with social media, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's really important these days. It's like, uh, let's think about it. I mean, as much as we hate it, how often are we scrolling on Instagram and we see something and we're like, Oh, that's that could be useful or I am, interesting. I want to see that. <laughs> I am rolling my eyes in agreement on this one. But I mean, I guess I guess it makes sense that if you don't have enough eyeballs on something, then you're not going to get as much data as the bigger majors. And inherently, that's what happens with the uh, uh, independent films. But um, yeah, can I, I tell you one really quick story sure. about using data? Um, so uh, Jim Cummings, if if you don't know him, look him up. Um, he is the, you know, writer, director, actor, producer of Thunder Road, um, him and his team. Um, so he, he works at a, at a production company and the, the team is called Vanishing Angle. They are a powerhouse. They do some really creative stuff in terms of the DIY space. But one really interesting example during the Thunder Road release was they, when they had their South by premiere, now, there's no way of actually looking at the data to say that this did have a direct correlation, but it's, it seems like it did, is they, when they knew their, the date of their South by premiere, like a couple of days before the premiere, 
they took out, they basically did an ad on social media through Facebook and they put $200 into it and they targeted because you can, you can do certain targets with ads, right? And you sure. can do like um, location-based targeting. And they said, we're going to target, a, I think it was like a two mile radius around Variety's offices in LA. You're... And basically, yeah, and, and, and basically saying the film is going to be at South by, here's the premiere date, like, and they literally got a review. That in is, Variety. that is smart. <laughs> that is and so, so you smart. Know, like getting, getting a review and the trades at a festival like South by is damn near impossible, right? Yeah. Unless you have a really, really good publicist and, and it, they didn't even have a publicist. It gets even weirder where sometimes like those reviewers are seeing five movies a day. And if you get, the, if you're the fifth movie, like, oh man, you're just going to, yeah. I, I, I mean, I've seen reviews and movies I've worked on at a festival where it's just the most arbitrary uh, observation where you could tell that guy was just, or that reviewer was just cranky or something. Yeah, totally, totally. And so they got, they got a really good review. And it's a two hundred and fifty thousand dollar micro budget feature. That's um, so, yeah. <laughs> I know. So one of the big questions I first asked you whenever we were on the phone was, I was trying to find uh, with personal websites and putting out your own stuff, uh, filmmaking. If anyone had done anything similar to the way uh, Radiohead released in Rainbows, where they did a pay what you want model, and it's tricky just because obviously you need a for that to work on that same scale, you need like. Christopher Nolan suddenly decides he wants to release a movie online that mm-hmm. that's pay what you want. But um, is there any um, is there anybody that's like working at this that's finding any success that's done this? I you know none of the titles that we've worked with um, have done it a pay what you want model. Um, I think it's a really interesting concept. You know, I would be really curious to, to see if it was successful or not. I think to your point, like you have to have a substantial following for that to even be an option. Um, so, you know, I think the closest thing to that that we've seen is, you know, again, the Vanishing Angle team, they recently did a, a, a crowd equity round for their next feature. And they were able to finance, gosh, I think it was, I want to say it was like 350000 that they were able to finance through crowd equity. So they were able so to that, go up a little at least for the next budget. Yeah. Of the but I mean, that was, that, w- that was by choice because right after, right after Thunder Road, with the success of Thunder Road, they worked with a studio on, uh, I can't remember what exactly the budget was, but it was, uh, you know, it was, I think, you know, significantly larger than their other budgets. I think it was over a million. Um, and so they, they were, they worked with a studio on a feature and then they decided that they wanted to do another, you know, another feature on their own. So that was, that was just their decision there. Like, that's what we're going to go for. Um, so was this like off their mailing list or what was this? Uh, Just the the points they've gotten from Facebook and social network and stuff. It, yeah, so it was it was primarily through yeah mailing list, but but Jim has an insane following on social media. I think he's up to the last time I checked, I think he was up to like seventy k on Twitter. Okay. So you know they they have such a huge network to tap into. So it was primarily social media that they were running that campaign through. Okay, I remember something you said was very very striking to me when I was um, talking to you about the idea of like. Um, the I, I remember the Amazon head Ted Hope says that he thinks filmmakers should like really start concentrating on putting out their own social network presence so you, you have a metric to show investors that you can get eyeballs onto the movie 
And um, I mentioned, well, you build a big enough brand uh, and mentions pay what you want. You said, if I remember correctly, you said something that someone had told you that transactional was, was dying or dead or something along those lines. Am I misquoting? No, you're not misquoting. Um, we've just seen that um, in, in the, the, you know, the films that we've, we've worked on. There is a steep decline um, in transactional video on demand. And I think it's because, I mean, I'm sure like with me, I like as much as we want to kind of talk about the frustrations that these streaming giants are, are bringing to the industry, like I, I watch Netflix all the time, oh, right? Sure. And yeah. I very rarely go on to iTunes to buy a film anymore. And so, you know, we saw like I was just... literally just thinking Thunder Road is on Prime and I need to watch that. Yeah, exactly. And so our first, like our first go-to is going to be like, is it on any of the streaming platforms that I have access to? I'm going to look there first. And then, you know, again, it's very rare when we're actually going to buy something transactionally. And so we saw a big drop off from our first films. You know, we were seeing, um, I think, I think Columbus did. um, And again, I, I, and like I wrote these case studies and it's it's funny like I write them and then sometimes the numbers just like completely escape my brain it's like oh okay all of that information is out there so like on to the next one <laughs> but it's data think... the, the whole thing of data <laughs> is like actually figuring it out and finding a yeah. way to measure it and so so uh in the case study which again like it's public and you can access these and I'll send you the links so your um so your listeners can can read them but um essentially Columbus made I think uh, I think it was a little over 100k in transactional video on demand, and then our, you know, some of our films the following year, like uh, I think it was like 25k that they were that they were pulling in transactionally. So it's like just a two-year difference. You see, like a very steep decline. That's just a microcosm of uh, all independent film. That's just because the numbers go down significantly on like how much people are buying stuff for, just because of when the streamings are offering. Um, yeah. Uh, I guess I want to also talk to you a little bit about, you talked to me about transmedia. Mm. And that being a, like just people making th- stuff that interacts with your film or just like say like um, you write a book based off a character or put out a story there or make a podcast about a certain character or um, you have a social media network about that. But you said that that sure. was very helpful to the, or it might have some future implications. Sure. I think um you know, I, I think that's just a really big question happening right now in the industry, right? Is like, what what are the different spaces that creators can can explore in order to create ancillary content um, to their you know feature length work? And so I, I think it's I think it's really about how can you create like a single source of IP? So you know, say it's a say it's a film. Um, how can you how can you have that film have uh, an expansive life on multiple channels, you know? So is it, you know, kind of creating, um, like for instance, uh, so- somebody who did this a long time ago, it was, uh, the, like, I think it was the Lizzie Bennett diaries. They created a website. It was a feature and they created a website where, you know, you, you kind of explored her diary entries through this website. And, and that really like pulled people in, um, and they were kind of a, ahead of their time, but um, but yeah, is there is there a way where as a creator you can 
you know, kind of find a new creative outlet in a, in a different space. And, you know, on top of being able to have, a, you know, a different mode of creation, also pull in a, a new audiences and more people into your, into your craft. And, and I think also what that does is it gives you, you know, it gives you a more robust content base that you can just start to build on to, to pull in more people through social channels, right. And create, create bigger audiences and, and a bigger following. Um, and so I think, I think we're, we'll start to see a lot more of that. You know, I, I was, when I was speaking with somebody in the, in the AI space, um, which there's, there's obviously a lot of people exploring AI. There's kind of a, a, a much smaller group of people who are actually exploring, um, AI and entertainment, um, especially in like the film world. Um, but when I was speaking to somebody, their prediction was, um, that we were going to see that, that the future of sustainability for artists was creating ancillary content. So, you know, content on social media, um, you know, kind of looking at these, there's uh, these apps, um, gosh, I can't, I can't remember the name of them, but there's, there are a few apps out there now where you can actually create, um, like a story that will get texted to people. So people can like can get in on these storylines and they're like texted throughout the day. And it's like you reading these text message chains of, of, you know, the, the characters going back and forth with one another. I think I remember so you mentioning that to me. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's things like that, that, um, you know, are starting to kind of bubble up within, within the industry. Well, it seems like it's also tricky if like, um, I know the new Watchmen TV show made a big thing about, uh, um, filling in the gaps on the show and that was based on the comic book originally had this every issue almost all album more stuff ends with like uh him doing some multimedia build out the world stuff and like i it seems like the trick is to find it in a way that's not craven marketing or craven like uh sure. something that actually enriches the uh the uh process did you follow any of the um i forget who was all involved but the grimes thing on uh on uh twitter where she was talking about ai stuff and no, I love Grimes. I absolutely love Grimes. Um, but I haven't, I haven't followed any there, AI conversation. There's this artist I like who b- followed up on it because she just done a talk. Her name's Holly Herndon, and she talked about uh, film music and AI being used in film music. And she mm. wrote this long Twitter essay where she was saying like, "There's, it's not going to create the most um, amazingly original stuff, but there's definitely going to be a process where it fills in the gaps of people who just have a need. So like if you have problem mm. licensing stuff, AI might fill in stuff like that. Um, sure, sure, yeah. Like the the, the, the less sexy stuff, <laughs> you know? The elevator music, commercials, I think they mentioned too. Yeah, it, it was yeah. it was definitely the, the boring stuff. Um, yeah. What does all this mean to, like one of the things that I found fascinating was specifically with First Girl was uh, when they self-distributed, it was like, that, that seems like it works, but um, only because that movie had done well at the Sundance that year. But what does uh, all these stuff mean for uh, movies that, especially it seems like uh, festival slots are being a little more democratically put out right now. Like like a lot of, they're not, no one's safe to get us a festival slot anymore and even then to get out there. Like what does it mean sure. if you have to bypass a festival and put out, or uh, to uh, get your name out there? Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, I'm not gonna lie, it's tough, right? Because festivals do play such an important, an important role, and and uh, especially in the independent film world, right? Like if you're if you're 
targeting independent film lovers. Um, you know, there's a big community of independent film lovers that do look to certain festivals as kind of like a curatorial force, right? But I, I think there's still a way, you know, and, and, and on the flip side, I think audiences are, are getting hungry and, and wanting to explore outside of curatorial forces too. Like, I, I think that we have generations that are coming up that, you know, wouldn't really even understand what that means, right? They're just, they're bombarded with content on a daily basis coming from a lot of different channels, and they're just going to latch onto something that they think is, you know, is interesting to them. You know, they could care less whether or not it has a, a stamp of approval on it. So I, I think it's, I think it's really important for creators to, you know, find their, find their communities, right? And so, you know, I think we saw a movement uh, kind of looking at, at like the micro of like, how do you, you know, how do you like mass market a film? And now I think what we're going to see, which we already are starting to see is like, you're, it, it's, it's not about like, you're not going to find traction and like just trying to get it out in front of as many people all at once. It's like really focusing on the specific communities that are going to be interested in this work, right? So is it like a certain regional community that's going to be interested in your work based on the themes that are present in the film? Or is it like a certain interest community? I know uh, one of the big questions I had for you initially was about the uh, um, short-term looks versus the long-term looks and how you can try to find ways of like, because the film industry, I feel, is always stupidly based on, especially in the last 30, 40 years, the uh, first week in box office. And that is just for the shelf life of a movie that that's that's a ridiculous measurement. That's a ridiculous mm-hmm. measurement. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think it's, you know, and I hate using this term. Um, I, I know we all kind of cringe when we hear it, but it, it is about building a brand around yourself as an artist, right? And yeah. so... Um, <laughs> I know. And that's like another one of those like eye rolls. No, no. Brands, what's worse but... <laughs> is I have it in my notes to ask you about building a brand, which it's, it, it, it's it, absolutely an eye roll. It's absolutely an eye roll. Yeah. Well, I, you know, listen, I, I know like, I, again, I'm not a filmmaker. I have an insane amount of respect for, for filmmakers and what they go through to, to put their art out there. It's, it's not, it's a relentless job. And so I get it. I mean, I get that at the end of the day, sometimes the last thing you want to do is turn to social media to kind of build a presence. But it's just, you know, it's the it's the nature of things now. And um, we live in the digital space. And so, you know, you've got to figure out what your digital stamp is, you know, maybe it's you know what, maybe it's not like the, the traditional, you know, building a, building a brand on Instagram, right? Maybe it's, you're a really thoughtful writer and you want to build a brand on medium by releasing a ton of essays that have to do with your work or things that are tangentially related to your work. You can, you can think outside the box when it comes to a digital presence, but you know, we are inherently a, a digital society now. So, well, especially like what... as like the digital forms migrate to other things. Like, in, when I was in New York, everyone talked about TikTok. Everyone talked about TikTok. One of my friends even flat out said he thought if a uh, <laughs> if Godard was a teenager right now, he'd be on TikTok. Is what he said. <laughs> yep. Well, yeah. so I guess uh, what I know basically when 
I've had this conversation with a lot of directors, specifically um, our mutual friend Tyler Savage. We had this talk a lot about we were we started falling in love with movies in the '90s and with independent film, and there gave us this false model of what uh, success was like. It's like you we believe very thoroughly in the meritocracy, but we also would just like, you make a good movie, gets bought by a festival, then you have a career from there. And I know like I went down that path briefly cause I especially followed specifically the Kevin Smith model where uh, I maxed out my credit cards only I didn't finish the movie. And so like that, the, I, I, I keep having these, mo- the example of this model dying out on me, especially with like um, movies I worked on that got to a festival and you're like, Oh, that should happen. And then it didn't. Um, I guess, what do you foresee the immediate future for um, indie filmmakers? Is it just going to be that the window is narrowing more and more specifically for slots that that break out? Do you think there's going to be a potential for uh, a movie, uh, internet-only phenomenon movie, a feature even, potentially? God. Um, It's a simple question. It's a simple question. Super simple. no, I think that's a question that everybody's asking them, and I think it, I think it's an even bigger question in terms of what's going to happen in the marketplace with the you know consolidation of of media giants with the power that the streamers have with the changing business models. It's there's there's a lot of there's a lot of kind of the equilibrium is it, it's out of it's out of whack, and there's a lot of things that are in flux right now. Um, which I think is it, it. Yes, it can be scary, but also, you know, in in any industry, when it reaches a point like this, there's opportunity for growth and there's opportunity for things to change. And so I think we're I think we're up on that moment right now. Um, and and it's it's hard to say. It's hard to say which direction it's going to go in. But you know, I think I think independent you know filmmakers um, and independent content creators have to have hope. Um, and I think that it, it starts by just making whatever you can with the, you know, the least overhead, if, if that makes sense. No, it's like, that's exactly how, where my headspace is at right now, too. Yeah. It's like, what resources do you have access to? And what quality content can you create for, you know, for uh, the, the least amount, right? So... Again, I think, you know, you look at these models like Thunder Road where they were very modest with their budget. They were like 250,000, that's what we have, that's what we're going to make this film for. And and I know that there's also some some ethical um, questions about um, you know, my you know, working in the micro budget space because, you know, you're asking for a lot of favors, yeah. right? T- but yeah. It's like a, you know, it's a it's a giving, it's like, you know, kind of a, it's, it's a giving culture, right? Because you expect, or I would hope, you know, I think a lot of filmmakers think this, it's like you ask for somebody to do something on your film and you expect them to ask you to do something, right? It's like a, it's like kind of like a bartering, a bartering society. So and transactional so, isn't dead after all. <laughs> transactional is not dead in that sense. Absolutely not. Um, but yeah, uh, to that point, I think it's, you know, just not looking to gatekeepers to give you the permission to make something and, uh, and also exploring different media landscapes um, and, and seeing, you know, where, where you can create content that helps you build an audience. I know when I'm, I'm, I'm in my most positive moods, I think uh, I like to think back on where we were cinematically a hundred years ago. And you read all these stories about like uh, 
why the court um the studios formed like i want to say it was louis b mayer first got in because he bought the regional rights to birth of a nation like he owned mm. the, he owned the rights to show it just in uh new england or something like that uh, and yeah. it's it was so wild west then and my hope is that instead of backward looking about why it wasn't like it was in the 90s we can look forward wild wild west style um last question uh so are you going to sundance <laughs> I am. I will be there. Um, and if uh, if anybody wants to reach out, please do. Um, I uh, I will be there the first. Uh, I will be there Thursday um, and through the first weekend. And I am leaving Tuesday. So if you're if you're there, hit me up and we can talk about data. Are you on um yeah, the Instagram, the Twitter, or what, social what's the media best? channels? Which was best um, way to contact you? Listen, I have I have a confession to make, um, and that is I do not practice what I preach. But power to you. On, power on to flip you. side, like I said, I am not a filmmaker, so um, I am I am not looking to uh, create that brand. No, but I do need to be better about it. I need to um I do need to practice what I preach. But I am at Crimson Vinyl. Um, on Twitter and Instagram, um, I, and then I, also I thought your Instagram was <laughs> private, actually. Um, my Instagram is private, but if you send me a follow <laughs> request and you like say, "Hey, yeah, heard you on this podcast," maybe mm. maybe I'll give you access. We'll see. Um, but Twitter is probably the better way to reach out to me, honestly. Okay. Um, and then I also answer the creative distribution at Sundance.org email address. Okay. So um, I would say if you have any distribution, marketing, data-driven questions, the best way to get a hold of me is through that email address. Do you want to say anything about the uh, is it the fellowship, Sundance Fellowship? Oh, I wish I could, but we no longer offer it. Oh, so, okay. I was I went down a dive of reading some articles about that, but I guess not. Yeah, we'll we'll, we'll catch up. Uh, on that, you and me. Um, okay. Yeah, we uh, we we used to offer a creative distribution fellowship, which was basically us giving a grant and access to resources for filmmakers to self-release their work. But we that is on hiatus at the moment. So. Okay. Yeah. okay well, on that positive note. <laughs> yes. so. I, here is a resource if anybody has questions. I, I really do love hearing from people, so please reach out. Okay, Jess. Usually, thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Shane, and hopefully I'll get to see you soon. Let's have a beer sometime. 